Yesterday, we had a bridal shower for one of our daughters who's getting married in May, and because of that, we had extra family in town. And after the bridal shower, we were just kicking back, having a little family reunion that afternoon and that evening, and sort of reminiscing about the past. And these families had spent a lot of time together in the past uh, on some vacations and on Thanksgiving, and one of the cousins had snapped pictures from her family photo album on her phone and was passing the pictures around of a Thanksgiving from, I think, about 1998. And I think that's the case because only one of our children was born there, our oldest, Luke, who wasn't even in the living room, but the others were there. You know, we have, so it's before, it was Becca's bridal party, but it was before she was born, before Sarah was born, before Elizabeth was born, before Joshua was born, but we were passing around these pictures, and even those kids who weren't even born yet were looking at these pictures, interested in these pictures, want to know, am I in the picture? No, that was before I was born. And like looking, why is that? Because it's their family. They're like, oh, mom. Back in 1998, you were so pretty, and now you're still so pretty, right? But Dad, you were so thin, and you have the same hair now, you know? So it's like, they were like, why are they doing this even though they're not in that picture? It's their family. And that is actually part of their story. What was in that picture was shaping them and and does shape them and will shape them because that's their family. We are looking in the year 2022 for several weeks, for several months, at the unfolding story of God in the Old Testament, the promises he makes to his people. And we, we said we want to keep two things in mind. One is the storyline of what's actually happening. Because that storyline, what's actually happening, is our family. It's our spiritual family. Because of the work of Jesus, we're caught up in that story that culminates in him and sweeps us up in it. So we want to look back at the stories in the Old Testament and say that's our spiritual family. It is a dysfunctional spiritual family. That is the way it is. Remember, the hero of the Bible is not me and it's not you, it's not anybody but Jesus. So we can look honestly at that spiritual family and let their happenings shape us. So we want to think about the storyline of the Bible. It gives shape, direction, definition to our life. The other thing we want to think about is the author, the Lord. Why is that? Because the Lord who's interacting with his people, our people, back in the Old Testament, is the same God who interacts with his, interacts with his people in the New Testament, is the same God who interacts with his people today. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Lord with whom we walk, with who, to whom we pray, with whom we interact, whose words we hear. And he doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever, as the Scripture says. And so we see his interaction, his working with his people in the Old Testament. We learn something about what he's like, even though some of the things we're seeing and we're seeing today are one-time, unrepeatable events. The reality is God, who is never, the, never changes, is the same in those events as he is today, so we can learn something about him and about his ways with his people. Today we see that this Lord, our Lord, empowers us what I'm going to call and define in a second, he empowers us for redemptive courage. Redemptive courage. And he empowers us through promise, through his word, and through his presence. The Lord empowers us for redemptive courage through promise, word, and presence. So let's jump in. If you remember where we are in the storyline, God has led the people of Israel out of Egypt. The descendants of Abraham, now called Israel, and pretty much... any Egyptians who also wanted to worship Yahweh. God led them out of Egypt through the Red Sea into the wilderness. At Mount Sinai, he gave the law. There's these ways of being, ways of living in community that are supposed to bring wholeness of life. Last week or a couple weeks ago, we saw that there's some law 
is fulfilled in Christ and falls away. Some law is fulfilled in Christ and continues on because it reflects God's, the moral nature of God and his design for humanity and creation. And so we still abide by that today. That's the law. And then after 14 months at Mount Sinai, prepping them to, for how to live when they go into the land, he's like, okay, it's time to go into the land. And that first generation is fearful. They're afraid of going into the land. The, the, they, they were afraid of the battles that would ensue. And so the Lord said, okay, we'll push pause for 40 years and let you guys largely pass away, and your children will enter the land, right? So if you're afraid to go in, you don't have to go in. We'll just wait. And uh, so they kind of exist in the desert and think of, uh, don't, it's not like the Sahara Desert all sand. Think of uh, the Canadian tundra, but warm. So scrubby, you know, there's, there is vegetation. It's not just all sand. But they're living out there camping in the wilderness for, for four decades. And they're prepared to go into the land now. And that's where we're going to pick it up today. The other thing you need to know that's pretty ca- uh, important to, to cap all this off, Moses, their leader, the one who brought them out of slavery in Egypt, who interceded for them, who prayed for them, has died. And his second in command, Joshua, has been basically promoted to the guy in charge. So here it is, Joshua chapter 1. It's in your insert. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord... The Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan River, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. So that is kind of like where the nation of Israel is today in the Middle East, but a bigger territory than that. Same general area, specifically defined. And that is a, and then what ensues in Joshua, which we're not going to get into, but you know some of the stories, is in Incredibly controversial today. It's incredibly controversial. Why is that? God has said, I'm giving you this area to live in. You may go live in this area. However, there are already people living in that area who are not so cool with them just coming into the area to live. Right? And we are especially, and John just prayed about it, we're especially aware of that today because in the world we have one sovereign nation, very publicly and unashamedly, invading another sovereign nation. We're like, is that what this is like? And the answer is, uh, kind of not really. This isn't, these aren't nations where you have to have a passport to go in. They're, they're areas where tribes dwell, who dwell there because they drove out the other tribes that were there. And it's a very tribal environment. But, just want to be honest with you, some of the language God uses for this moving into the promised land is stark. And it is violent by our standards today. And a question arises when we read some of this, like, how does this square with the teaching of Jesus, who seems to be about love and peace? How does, that, how do this, you know, how does the God of the Old Testament match the God of the New Testament? Even though the Bible just calls Old Testament New Testament Scripture, uh, it creates, creates some questions. In fact, these episodes, these events that this giving of the promised land catalyze, cause a lot of people, critics of Christianity, to be very harsh against the God of Scripture. One prominent atheist uh, 
theologian. I was going to say atheist theologian. I don't know if that works. It's actually a very strong religious commitment he has to atheism. But named Richard Dawkins in his book, The God Delusion, about these whole um, entrances into the promised land, which he calls holy war. The Bible never calls it that. That's what critics call it. Uh, causes him to say the God of the Bible, and I put this quote in there, is a vindictive, racist, genocidal, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser. Right? Because he says to the nation of Israel, the Jews, go in and take this land. I'm giving it to you. And driving out all the other nations. So what's going on here? Is the, the God of Scripture a vindictive, racist, genocidal, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser? So I want to just do a couple minutes here, a little bit of a sidebar, and talking about what critics of Scripture call holy war. Not that this would convince Richard Dawkins, of course. Um, you know, there's... There's always enough light to see if you want to and never enough light to see if you don't want to. It's just kind of the way it works. If you want to see, you can see, and if you don't want to see, God gives enough evidence to convince those who want to be convinced and never enough to, for those who don't want to be convinced to be convinced. So I don't tell you this so you'll memorize all these, but just so you know, you know, there might be a larger picture here than just a vindictive, racist, genocidal, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, which, since I'm guessing you're gathering for a worship gathering, you already believe that there's more to the story, but let me tell you what more to that story might be. First of all, if you keep reading in the, gospel, in the Bible, past the Gospels, all the way to the end of the book, you realize the Jesus who does teach about love and grace and compassion and forgiveness also brings judgment. That's what Revel- the end of Revelation is about, and we heard a lot about that on Friday night at our conference because it's about ultimate things, and that happens ultimately, finally. It's in the future, mostly. But Jesus would have to hate this world not to bring judgment on it, right? Because sin and death is, uh, is destruction and destroying this world. God's removal of sin and death is what the Bible calls judgment, And Jesus would have to hate this world not to judge sin and death, not to remove it. But he loves this world, so he does that. And it's out of love for this world that he does so. Uh, Second, if he wants to bring some of that final judgment forward in the future, it's totally just for him to do so. Usually he's so patient, he's just waiting. And that patience makes us, when he, when he does bring judgment in real time in the Scripture, we're like, oh, my goodness, he's so judgmental. No, he's, he's no more judgmental. He's just shortening the time between the rebellion and the just consequence. But kind of the place I've been for my whole life is simply saying something like this. God is God. I'm not. I'm the clay, he's the potter. Who am I to say to God, you should do it a different way? He's God. He's big. Just get used to it. He's a big God. He creates, he can uncreate. It's up to him. And uh, one, I don't want to back off that at all. I mean, he's God. Sometimes we just have to get used to the fact that God is God and he's bigger than us. And we don't like how he's doing stuff because we don't know as much as he does. We just have to get used to that. That we, when we complain against God, it's just because we think we're more righteous than God is and we need to repent and move on, okay? So... Um, that's true. God, God is God. He's going to do what he wants. But for the last few years, I've been seeing, like, okay, there's some more realities that round this out a little bit. And I just want to explore a couple of those and give a brief apologetic for holy war. Okay. First of all, we need to know this is a one-time event, not an ongoing way that God teaches his people to act. 
It's very specific in history. This has begun. This is in. It's a specific time in history. But what's going on? Okay, if we go back, so I've got these enumerated in your insert. Here we go on the right side, inside. What about holy war? In Genesis 12, 15, and 17, God makes a promise of land to Abraham. I'm going to give you this land called the promised land. It comes to be known as the land of Canaan, where the Canaanites live. The early Canaanites were actually called Amorites, but we'll get to that in a second. So God says, Abraham, I'm going to give you and your descendants after you this land at some point in the future. Now that land we learn in, in the New Testament is a type of something. Taylor talked about this on Friday night. The Bible has this concept of typology, that there's a, a type in the Old Testament that's fulfilled in the New Testament. You could say it's a sign that gets fulfilled or a, a foreshadowing that gets, that gets more concrete. The holy land or the promised land is a type in the Old Testament that's fulfilled in the New Testament. We see it actually was foreshadowing the, the rest that we have in Christ. Because the holy land, I keep saying the holy land, the promised land was supposed to be a place where you could rest from sin and the effects of sin in the Old Testament. And that was anticipating, foreshadowing this rest that is in Jesus, where we can rest now in real time from the, uh, from the, from the pressure of sin, from the, from the mastery of sin. And we see further that that was anticipating the time in the future, yet future to us, when the whole earth will be full and uh, the restoration of all things comes and the earth rests from the effects of sin and brokenness in it. So in the Old Testament, the promised land was a type of the rest that's in Jesus and the full rest that's coming to the earth. So it was supposed to be a place where sin was removed or working on the removal of sin. Here's the problem. The people who lived there were especially wicked. Number three, hundreds of years before this time in Joshua, God warned of the wicked, of the, uh, the wickedness of the Canaanites. So Abraham was about 700 years before this. I know the timeline's hard in the Bible because it's like, it's a few chapters, right? Just like the, yesterday, 700 years. God tells Abraham, I'm going to bring your, your descendants back here in four generations. That gets kind of weird. We think he's saying, not 40-year generations, but Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joshua, and then all the descendants of Joshua's, the 12 tribes coming back. But he says in Genesis 15, 16, they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. The Amorites were the Canaanites, and God's saying there, they are specifically bad people. They're wicked, they're evil, they're no good. And one time in the future where their, their wickedness or the iniquity is complete, like it's like filling up a cup. It's getting more and more and more. Then I will bring them back here. Why is that? We'll see in a second. But all I want us to see for now is like 700 years before this, God's like, the people who live there are especially wicked and terrible. Number four, the phrasing around complete destruction is, I think, this is a likelihood, right? War rhetoric expressed in many cultures to mean thorough defeat. Here especially it it means removing false worship. So do you remember, I haven't given a football illustration for a while, so it's time. It's been like three weeks. This season before the Colts were bad, they were good. You remember this? And they played the Buffalo Bills and they beat them. It was like 45-17. They owned them. Do you remember this? Right. Um, so we could say, look, Indianapolis obliterated Buffalo. 
We say that. Oh, remember that back in the early, you know, mid-season? They obliterated Buffalo. It was awesome. And we're like, yeah, that's right. And a sports writer could say, oh, Indianapolis obliterates Buffalo. Cool. We know what that means. We know. We saw the game. Whatever. Got it. Fast forward 2,000 years, our culture somehow wiped away, and archaeologists digging this up. Like, Indianapolis obliterates Buffalo. Oh, my goodness. What does the word obliteration mean? Total annihilation. So this city marched to that city and totally obliterated that city. That's not what happened at all. What happened is a thoroughly uh, known speech form that said one team, one representative of one city, beat the representative of another city, handily, thoroughly. Now, no, the Bills didn't die. The entire city of Buffalo didn't die. And, you know, there's some good athletes out here, but none of us played in the game, right? It was representatives that beat other representatives. I'm not just making this up. Let me just re- read you a couple of examples. There's about six of them. I'll read two of them. This is about 100 years before this. King Tut of Egypt, they fight the, the, an army called the Mitanni. Here's what he says. The Mitanni were overthrown within an hour, completely annihilated and now non-existent. And a few years later, they went to war with the Mitanni again. It's war rhetoric. One theologian calls it ancient trash talk. Ancient war trash talk. A few years after this, when when Israel's in the land, the northern kingdom, Israel, gets in a fight with Moab, and they lose a battle, and the king of Moab, Mesha, brags, this is outside the Bible, it's in a historical document, that the northern kingdom of Israel has been utterly perished for always from the earth. But you can read the prophets of Israel a few years after this, talking about the northern kingdom. It's ancient trash talk. It's warfare language saying, we've de- you are to destroy them thoroughly, right? Obliterate them, annihilate them, take them out. I think we actually have an example of this in the Scripture. And uh, this, by the way, this is war. And I'm not trying to soften what it says. I'm trying to, like, be faithful. Like, what did... What did that mean then? We have to get in their mind. Like, what did that mean to them is, is a little bit more expansive. Deuteronomy 7, um, verse 2. When the Lord your God gives them, these nations, over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. Cool. Done. Complete destruction. Harem. Holy war. So what do you do after you completely destroy them? Well, you shall not make a covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your sons or daughters or taking their daughters or sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. So a lot of people have asked, well, if you've told them to destroy them completely, why do you then say don't intermarry after that? Good question. Possibly because verse 5, but thus you shall deal with them. Perhaps this is what complete destruction means. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their ashram, their asherah poles, the idols they danced around and worshipped, and burn their carved images with fire. Remove all vestiges of false worship from the land. That's the complete annihilation I'm talking about. And probably that's the case because it was in that worship that the Canaanites were particularly wicked. It was, the, it was a sexualized worship, so it was all around cult, prostitution, and adultery. And worse than that, 
regular, routine child sacrifice. Sacrificing to the god Molech so he would be happy and their crops would be good. Now, I know some of you are saying, wait, we live in a culture that's got a lot of sexual twisting and child sacrifice. I know. I don't know what to say about that, but other than we probably should repent. Uh, but this is, it was in that worship. And so, so perhaps that's why God said, I want you to totally destroy every vestige of false worship from the land. Number five, God was not playing ethnic favorites. You know, I love the Jews and hate everybody else. His removal of the Canaanites was because of their evil and wicked practices for hundreds of years. Why would I say it's not because Israel is righteous, but it's because the Canaanites were wicked? Well, Deuteronomy 9. Not because of your righteousness or the upright of your heart are you going to into possess a land, but because of the wickedness of these nations the Lord your God is driving them out from before you. And that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. So he's like, these guys, remember 700 years ago I said they were wicked? They've been doing the same stuff for 100 years, 200 years, 500 years, 700 years. And I'm ready to remove them. Israel, you are going to be the instrument of that removal because you're awesome and righteous? No. You're a dysfunctional family. But because I've made promises and I will use you as the instrument to remove them. And then, number six, God warned his covenant people they must not adopt the ways of the Canaanites or the same fate would befall them. Deuteronomy 18. When you come into the land the Lord your God has given you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable abominable practice of those nations. And then almost every single prophet in the Old Testament says, you are doing the practices. Number seven, the Israelites did adopt the ways of the Canaanites. And we're overrun as well. So God said, if you would, through prophets, if you adopt these ways of these nations with the false worship and even sometimes child sacrifice in Israel, what will happen to you, what will happen to the Canaanites by your hand will happen to you by another. And sure enough, Assyria is called the instrument of God. Then Babylon is called the instrument of God to remove the evil even from among his own people. Some other considerations there uh, in number eight, some tribes are never to be touched. He's not giving Israel carte blanche to just wage war and I'll bless it. Nope, it's specific. B, most of the time language is drive out, not destroy. C, this might be new to some of you. There are three cities, quote cities, that are destroyed completely in Joshua. Jericho, I, and Hazor. We typically think, if you read a children's storybook Bible or something like that, I'm not saying the children's storybook Bible, but a children's Bible, you think, is that a city like Anderson's a city or Connersville? The city of Jericho was six acres. They were military garrisons. They were military garrisons on the front edge of the range, and the people lived in the hills. These were military outposts. All three of those cities are military outposts. And so they did destroy those cities, but it's warfare. It's not, you know, I know there was Rahab in one of the cities. Like, you may understand why she's at a military garrison, right, if you know this profession. So um, there's, there's more to the story sometimes. Oh, by the way, also peace treaties were available, according to Joshua 11. 
So if you want a couple of good books, I would recommend one is called Is God a Moral Monster? That's a little more heady. One that's a little more accessible is called Skeletons in God's Closet by Joshua Ryan Butler. He's got a couple of good podcasts. If you reach out to me, I can send them to you. So I don't want to lean away from the fact that this is actually violent, but it's warfare violence. It's not necessarily just like go in and kill all the women and children, right? It's, this is a war. Because battle against evil is violent. You know who knows that better than anybody? Jesus. Jesus. What is the cross but Jesus taking the violence of evil warfare on himself for us? He knows it's violent. So it, yeah, and, and here, unlike Israel, Jesus is good and is righteous. And he absorbs the violence for you and me. Okay, so yes, it's violent, not like the caricatures. Okay, back into, that was a long aside, I, I get that. And keep those, there's other good reasons, so I can multiply these. I'm, the book, you know, this God of Moral Monster is pretty thick. If this is a non-repeatable event, what's the point of studying it, right? Is God calling you out to holy war? Well, yes and no. Not like this. Not like this. Um, What does it reveal about the author, the Lord? We've already said he empowers redemptive courage by promise, word, and presence. What is redemptive courage? Well, let's take this passage and pick it up and run it right through the New Testament. We might say it's like redemptive courage is the courage to move with the Lord in the expression of his kingdom in this world. Redemptive courage is the courage it takes to move with Jesus in the expression of his rule and reign in this world, in our own lives, even in our own bodies, in our own relationships, in our own workplaces, right? In our own, with, with our own resources, with our own time, with our own creativity. Taking, uh, and it does require courage. And it may be just good to step back and be reminded that it does take courage to follow Jesus. It takes courage to follow Jesus in our world. There's a famous place in the the Lord of the Rings where Aragorn comes to the king of Rohan, Theoden, and he's trying, there's this evil darkness sweeping across Middle Earth, you know, destroying everything in its path, and Aragorn says to King Theoden, join us. Join us. We need your we know need your spears. We need your riders. We need your help to join us against this great evil. And Theoden, because he's a little older and weakened, and because he wants to protect his people, he doesn't want to go to war. And Aragorn says, Join us. And Theoden says, I cannot, I cannot risk open war. And Aragorn says to Theoden, Open war is upon you whether you risk it or not. That evil is coming whether you risk it or not. It's going to fight against you whether you fight against it or not. We didn't choose this. We were born into a world where open war is waged whether we risk it or not. There is a spiritual reality in this world that looks at Jesus and says, no. And I want all of you to agree with me to say no to this one called Jesus who's taken on flesh and stepped into this world to bring renewal to this world. And there's no option of being neutral in this war. So yes, we are called to war, but it's a different kind of war. It requires courage to love well now. 
It requires courage to love well in a world that says, you know, it's a lot easier just to despise other people. Or it creates courage to love well in a world that says, let's define love like we want to and not like the Creator does. It takes courage to stand strong. It takes courage to work with integrity in our work, even when nobody else is doing, doing it, even when you have a sense that people expect me not to work with integrity in my work. It takes courage to do our work as into the Lord as, and not unto man. It takes courage to operate with integrity in our workplace. It takes courage to have hope when any of us right now could flip on our cell phones and within 20 seconds find a thousand reasons to be discouraged. It takes courage to say yes to some things and no to some things. It takes courage to make peace when being bitter and vitriolic is easier or just pretending like nothing's wrong is easier. It takes courage to make peace. It takes courage to give generously in a world that only talks about scarcity. It takes courage to, to not fear in a world that says fear, 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 fear. Or to face our fears in a world that says, guard yourself and, and promote yourself. It takes courage to humble ourselves in a world that says, promote yourself. It takes courage to face the Lord, to, to face the future with the Lord, to trust the Lord with the future. It takes courage to trust the Lord with the future of our own bodies and our own health. Will we be okay? Some of you have, that's in your face right now. It takes courage to face uh, to trust the Lord with the future of our relationships. Will I get married? Will I stay married? Things are hard. It is hard. It takes courage to trust the Lord. It takes courage to trust the Lord with our own children in a world that wants to sweep them away, in a world in which they were born in open war too. It takes courage. That's why Hebrews 3.13 says, in the body of Christ, we are to encourage each other daily. If you think about that word encourage, it's like give courage to each other. Why do we encourage each other daily? It continues, so none will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. It takes courage. And what's stunning to me in this one-time, non-repeatable event, world-changing event, event God giving this typological promise that's fulfilled in the new earth is the way he encourages Joshua and the people is so common, normal. Means of encouragement that you have access to, and so do I. Let's look at those briefly. Verse 5. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Two promises there. I I made this promise to to your fathers. I'll carry it through, and I will never leave you and forsake you. So how do we respond to that? Well, we ask, what promises does the Lord make that we can lean on? He, He gives these promises to encourage us. And there's lots of them in the Scripture. I'm going to give you a couple that have encouraged me specifically. They're maybe not the same for you, but there's, there's hundreds, right? Isaiah 11, 9. Do you know that the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea? How do the waters cover the sea? Completely. The knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth completely. Man, that's great. You know what that means? We are in a story that cannot lose. We are in a story that ends well. Now, there might be problems along the way, 
We may get taken out, but we're in a story that ends well. You know, it, it cannot lose. That means we can share the gospel with confidence. Somebody not, might, might receive it. Somebody might not. I don't know, but I do know this. The knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. We can love. We can move toward other people in grace. We can move toward other people in generosity, anticipating this day when the knowledge of the glory of the Lord covers the earth as the waters cover the sea. Why? Because God's made a promise. And we lean into it, and we bring it to ourselves, and we see those things, we meditate on them, and what happens? We grow in strength and courage. Doesn't it just encourage you to meditate or think about, wait, God said, I'm going to make the whole wor- world know about me. He said that, Isaiah eleven nine. I mean, he either said it or he didn't say it. He said it, and we can give ourselves to it. We just hold on to it. Psalm 34, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. I'm giving myself to Jesus. I'm giving myself to the Lord. That means I will have no lack. I may have less than other people, sure. But there's no way I'm at the same time going to be saying, Jesus is amazing. I'm really lacking things. It's just not going to happen. We give ourselves to the promise. Isaiah 41, fear not, I am with you. Do not be dismayed. I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. When I'm fearful of something, here's what I know. There's a promise I'm not claiming, I'm not believing, not leaning on that God is with me and he will uphold me. There's so many more. Okay, just one more. Okay, Hebrews 13. Actually, I just was meditating on this this morning. This is where this specific promise is picked up. Hebrews 13, 3. Remember those who were in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you were also in the body. So, it's a church into persecution. He's saying there's some imprisoned. Don't shy away from them because you think you might get in prison too. They're your brothers and sisters. Go visit them. Let, ma- let the marriage be- bed be held in honor among all and let marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexual immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have for, this is a summary statement, he has said, I will ne- ne- never leave you or forsake you. I will never leave you or forsake you Therefore, visit those in prison, keep the marriage bed pure, and uh, be free from the love of money. So what he's saying there is in some way, if you're fearful to go visit those in prison because you might think you're getting imprisoned, you're forgetting that I will be with you. If you're, in some way, the marriage bed is defiled, it is because you are not trusting my promises for you or for your future. If the love of money is overwhelming you, it's you're forgetting that I am with you and I will provide for you. Right, so these promises. Take them to ourselves. Scour the scriptures for these promises. And if you're you're not quite sure, you're like, is this a promise for me? Was that from somebody else? Or reach out. Call me, call Taylor. Like, hey, how do I think about this? Sometimes they're just they're principle type promises we we can claim for ourselves. But we need to do that. Because he said I will, I will make promises to you that will support you. Okay. Number seven. I'm sorry. Pay, uh, verse seven. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. He intends to strengthen his people through his word. This book of the law, 
Joshua only had five books of our Bible, the Torah. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Joshua hadn't been written yet. <laughs> this is Joshua 1 right here. And God says to him, talk about it. Meditate on it. Think about it. Do it. Peruse it. And over time, what happens, right? The internal culture of our soul became, becomes shaped by the Word of God. And we make our way in an external world that's not shaped by the Word of God. So what? We are shaped by the Word of God in community, in Christ. I grew up in Illinois in the, in the really rural areas. And so when the corn is down in the winter uh, and the winds would come across the plain, if you're driving in the country, it can be quite dangerous because literally all you see is white. Really. That's it. If you've been in rural areas, you've seen that. Like this, I only have white before me. I have no idea where the road is. But fortunately, most of the farmers, soybean farmers or corn farmers, had fences and so you know that, I don't know what happens if a car comes toward me, but as long as I stay between the fences, I'll probably be on the road, right? And it's usually true. Occasionally you find a ditch, but you try to f- stay in between those fences and your path is good. This is what God is saying. I've revealed my word to you. To the left, to the right, stay in between it. Your path is good. It's fruitful. It's successful. There is a... Uh, there is a brand of Christianity Christianity called health and wealth or prosperity gospel, a lot of TV preachers. Essentially what it says is God's intention is to make you rich. And this unfortunately takes like hold in the uh, poor communities, third world countries. I could rattle off a lot of names of preachers that you know that are very popular. I won't do that, Joel Osteen, T.G. Jakes. But um, others... I don't really have the list at hand, but there's, and they make a lot of money, you know. Why? Because their brand of popularity tends to look like wealth, great suits, private jets, $2,000 sneakers, and never any sickness. Following an ancient Near Eastern Jewish carpenter who had no home. But this passage does say the word will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. Is that what this is saying? Well, yes and no. The the challenge with the health and wealth gospel is that's actually dictating the terms of what success is. Or what we have here is receiving the terms of what success is. And when we have that internal culture shaped by the Word of God, we begin to see things like Psalm 1, where blessed is the man who walks in the way of the Lord. Walking in the way of the Lord is the blessing itself because it's bringing us into alignment with the God who created us and the life we were designed to live. That's the blessing this is talking about. And, but the prom, don't miss the promise here, though. My, the Word makes us wise. And the internal culture of our life, as it's shaped by it, we grow in wisdom. And sometimes, it's, you know, it's clear what God says about something or another, and sometimes it's not clear. And then when it's not clear, we operate in wisdom based on what He has said clearly. And the more that internal culture of our life is shaped by the Word of God, the wiser we become the wiser we become, and our path is good. Finally, verse 9. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. His intention is to bring strong courage to his people through his presence. Now, God said to Joshua, I'll be with you wherever you go. He says back in verse 5, as I was with Moses, I will be with you. So the question is, okay, that's Moses and Joshua. They're like 
all-stars, right? Do we get the presence of God like Moses and Joshua did? And the answer is no, we don't. Part B of the answer is we get more. We get more. That's the whole, read 2 Corinthians 3 and 4. Moses got to enjoy the presence of God, but it was, and so his, after he was with God, his face glowed, but it was a fading glory. The whole point is that that God who dwelled with Moses and with Joshua dwells in you. This is the Holy Spirit of the living God. Jesus, when he's de- just before he departs, he tells his disciples, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And then he returns in the Spirit, now called the Spirit of the Son, in his people. So the reality is the one who dwells in each of you and in us together in Christ is there's a more intense indwelling and presence of God that you experience, that we experience possibly, than Moses could experience. And we lean into the promise, we lean into the word, we lean into the promise of his presence, and we walk forward. So I don't know what everybody's facing here. Some of you I do. My guess is everybody has something which now presently requires strong courage, redemptive courage. Something in your life you can move toward with love or courage, another person you can move toward with love, a very hard, difficult circumstance you can move toward with love. Maybe you're feeling the weight of brokenness in your own body, and it requires strong courage. It requires redemptive courage. And if we look at ourselves, we're like, I can never do this. And the great news is we don't have to. We're not the one who says to ourselves, I will never leave you and forsake you. Roger doesn't say to Roger, I will never leave you and forsake you, right? Because I will wake up tomorrow and forget about that. Joshua is a Hebrew name. Anybody know the Greek New Testament name for Joshua? Jesus. The Lord saves. The Lord saves. Hebrews 3 says Joshua is leading them into the promised land, the land of rest. But actually he could never give them rest. There remains therefore a rest for the people of God. A new and better Joshua will arise. His name is Jesus. And he will lead his people into the promised land. He will trust in the promises of God. He will cling to God's word, even when, even when tempted by Satan himself in the desert for 40 days. But you know, he will not always hear those words, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Jesus on the cross in Matthew 27 taking the just judgment that is ours. That is the final judgment coming into the future for his people. Jesus on the cross utters those haunting words, my God, my God, you have forsaken me. Taking that judgment that's ours, all the rebellion, so he can turn to you today and me today and say, I will never leave you or forsake you. Let's go into your life. Let's go into that situation, whether it's in your own body or your own relationships or your own workplace, with your resources, with the future, with your parents, with your children, at your workplace, with integrity, with strong courage. I will go with you. I've made promises to you. I've given you my word, and now I give you myself. I will never leave you, and I will never forsake you. One of the ways we celebrate that and bring that home to bear in our soul each week is we come to the communion table. 
this picture of Jesus' refusal to leave us or forsake us because in that moment he's being forsaken. If you're in Christ Jesus by faith, this table is open to you. In the New City community, we say taking communion is this declaration that we receive and rest on Jesus alone as he's offering the gospel, and we want to submit to his lordship, his authority in our life. If that's you, this is for you. I'm going to pray and invite you to come to the table. We'll go kind of approach from the outside to the back, grab a piece of bread and either white wine, nope, white grape juice or red wine, and bring them back to your seats. White grape juice, red wine. Lord Jesus, um, you will never leave us or forsake us. You refuse to. Therefore, we can face whatever with redemptive courage. Let us be willing to do so, not by looking inside ourselves, but looking to you and what you've done for us. We now come to this table to celebrate that in your name. Amen. As you're prepared, come to the table, grab your elements, bring it back to your seat, and then we'll partake together.